just wanted to let you know about something that's going to be happening on October 28th, which is a Friday. It is the second annual Center for Being Known Connections Conference. You want to talk a little bit about that for us, Kurt? Yeah, thanks, Pep. We're really excited. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Connections Conference that we had last year. And this year, it is going to be a one-day event, Friday, October 28th, as you mentioned. And the purpose of the Center for Being Known is to serve as a clearinghouse, but also to develop an association of those folks who are really interested in pursuing more about what it means for us to not just learn about what we're doing at the interface of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation, but how we apply this in our day-to-day lives. Mm. And in particular, how we apply this work in particular domains of our lives, whether we are working in business or education or in the arts or in the mental health field or whatever it is that we're doing. If we're working in farming, whatever it is that we're doing, we really want to invite people to be curious about what is God up to using this work that he's given us to do, and how does that enable us to flourish in particular ways in those particular domains? And so the conference is offering four really, really seasoned speakers, people who know their craft and who know their worlds, four speakers, one in business, one in education, one in spiritual formation, one in the mental health field, that are all going to help us dig deeper into what it means for us to apply these principles in their particular domains and also help spark imagination for everyone else who comes uh, to do the same, no matter what that domain is that they long to see God do more work in. I'm really excited for this this year. You know, last year we did just a virtual event, and this Mm -hmm. year we are doing a hybrid event where you can actually come to the event, be there in person with us, And if you aren't able to make the trip, wherever you are, there is a virtual option as well. Go to thecbk.org to register and get all the information. Um, I will actually be there. I'll be emceeing the event this year, which I have... Dude, okay, okay. I've got to be chomping at the bit. I've got to be chomping at the bit to say, like, yes, like, you're the reason people should come. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, let's just I have t- had let's so many this. people ask the question. I've had so many people ask the question. So, Kurt, what's the story behind the most beautiful man in the world? And I want to say, come to the CBK conference and get your answer. Oh, my gosh. And I tell you what, we have decided to do something really different as well. Uh, if, <laughs> if you are coming, if you're in town, uh, then the night before, on the Thursday before, on the 27th, we are going to record a live version of the Being Known podcast. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're <laughs> and we're all going to be there. Amy will be there. It's yes. all. It's just. It's going to be. It's going to be great. And I, uh, we're going to hold this uh, at a place called McLean Presbyterian Church. It's going to be a beautiful venue. And you know, I, I would love for people to come. You know, for the CBK conference, come for our live recording of uh, the podcast. And I and I would say I would want people to come. Certainly, uh, come prepared to uh, find joy. Mm-hmm. Come prepared to find connections with other people, to be nourished. Um, but also during the conference, uh, come prepared to do a little bit of work. Come prepared to, you know, do some some work of, of some rigor because we're going to invite people, to, we're going to invite you to uh, let God uh, into spaces that perhaps we've not always even been aware that 
he wants to come into. But uh, overall, I'm just thrilled at what we've got on the docket for this conference and for the podcast recording. And uh, Pepper, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're going to be able to emcee this and that we'll get to do the recording the night before. I'll do my best to not ruin the whole event. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about it. So go check it out at the CBK, T-H-E-C-B-K dot org to register. Welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my flowered friend, the most beautiful man in the world. We are here to discover and explore (laughs) what it means to be truly known. You know, I think I think that podcast <laughs> listeners must just be so thrilled to hear descriptions of clothing on on a on a podcast. So, if you if you want to see why Coleman's co- Coleman, hey Coleman, <laughs> <laughs> why Kurt is calling me? Sorry. The uh, you all thought we were just one. friends. It's it turns out turns out I'm I'm his young twenty something year old son. Yes, Coleman. yes. It turns out that I am wearing a floral shirt on this late Friday afternoon, getting ready for mm-hmm. the weekend as I'm here. So if you want to take a look at it, go over to the YouTube channel and check it out. It's quite something. Right on. <laughs> so we are here today in episode eight of the Being Known podcast for season five. And as you know or should know by now, we are going through Dr. Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame. And today we are in chapter seven. And chapter seven is titled, A Healing Cloud, Our Healing Cloud of Witnesses. And again, Kurt, I am really enjoying going through this book again. It's been a long time since I've had the opportunity. And going through it week by week like this with you has been really terrific. I wish it could have happened the first time I read it. So I'm, mm. I'm, um, mm. I'm happy that we're doing this for our listeners. And um, thank you for bringing it to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really – it's uh... – a joy to do it, and um, hoping that folks are having the opportunity to uh, move from a place uh, where where shame tends to want to straightjacket us, and right. uh, moving moving to a place where we have greater freedom and a greater sense of being able to create the things that we were made to create in the world. How does it feel for you? How is it feeling for you going back and going through this book again after? you know, a few years now since you wrote it. Yeah. Is this a good feeling? Is this, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I I, I think I, I mean, I, I know that, I mean, as a, as an author, I mean, I, I it's not like I've, I've written like, you know, I don't know, 30 books, but I am aware of, of authors, you know, that you, we, you write a book and then you move on to the next book and you move on to the next book and so forth and so on for, for many. And I think that it, it's turned out that, this particular book continues to have a, a bit of staying power if, mm-hmm. if you watch the trends of who's buying which of the pieces that I've written. And I, I think it, it, it may have staying power because our, our topic, right? you know, unfortunately, has staying power. Mm-hmm. And we, it's not like we ever complete our tour of duty with shame. Uh, it is a thing that we are going to continue to respond to because evil's not, as we like to say, it's not going to go quietly into the night. It's going to forever attempt to continue to use any and all of those old ancient neural networks that represent our remembered past, our remembered moments of shame. And so the, the work of, of shame is just 
I think continuing to practice being connected in vulnerable community, not unlike we talked about last week a little bit, and we're going to talk explicitly today, being connected in vulnerable community in such a way that we are able to address that. Now, my, my experience is that, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast here before, I, I was talking with Phyllis, my wife, uh, two or three months ago, and I was saying, it, it, I used to think that growth for me mm-hmm. uh, is primarily measured in terms of like becoming more of the person I want to be. I want to be a person of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those kinds of things. And that, you know, I could say, oh, I think I'm more patient than I was six months ago or a year ago or something or I'm more joyful or any, any of those things. And I think that's not untrue. I think, I think those things are true. I said, but, you know, I, I've also come to discover that there's another element of growth that I really don't like that I wish were different. And that is the, the element of, you know, as, as we actually become more deeply known, I become increasingly aware of all the real estate that needs now to be redeemed. I become increasingly aware of all the stuff and all the places that I don't have everything together. Mm. And you, you, you get this impression that, you know, each of us, you know, kind of like has been given a significant tract of land by God and uh, we get to do with what we, what we will. And I, I surrender that to Jesus and Jesus plants his flag and says, this is great. I'm glad that this is your, that we're going to work on that. We're going to work this land together. And then you spend the rest of your life, like going throughout the county or going throughout the counties of the country that belongs to you, the, over, over which you have been given stewardship. And I'm like, I didn't even know that I had this county in my, in, in, in my contract. Mm. I didn't even know that this is, and he's like, well, yeah, and and the more, the longer we're together, the more we're going to like travel around and see all the different places of the land that belongs to you that is beautiful and all the places where, as it turns out, you know, you have that one space that's a, you know, nuclear waste dump and let's work on that. We we really want to work on that. And, you know, so there are the, there are the moments of like, gosh, you don't really get to expand your growth in terms of like, oh, we'll cultivate this tract of land and then we'll grow corn over here. We'll grow reed over here. We're going to plant cherry trees over here. Oh, and then there's the nuclear waste site. And I'm like, at some point you're like, do I, I you know, do I really want to keep exploring all this land that has been given to me? Because like, I'm going to, like, you know, I get the picture. And and I think there is this, this uh, sense in which Shame is is one of evil's most potent weapons trying to corrupt our ongoing growth in stewardship of the tracts of land that we've been given. And it figures, oh, you don't want to look at that. You know, there's 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 400 acres over there. You don't want to look at that. And I think God is inviting us. And this is what we, we we've said as as we'll we'll get to toward the end of our book is this whole notion that when Jesus comes to Peter in John 21 and he starts to say, do you love me? It is this enterprise of like, he's going to, he's not going to allow for there to be any square inch of Peter's soul that is left in the darkness of shame. Jesus is coming to find every square inch of it. And of course this is hard because I, uh, it's, 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 it's painful. It, 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 it's exposing. 
However, it, uh, the more practice that we have, the more willing I am to like, okay, we'll go find the next tract of land because I saw what we just did at the nuclear waste site. We cleaned that up. Okay. We're going to, and we're going to continue to work on that waste site that like, that's never going to end. <laughs> yeah. Even when you think, yeah, I'm done with that. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing that you like to think, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I check that box. That. It's gone. It's done. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. done. And then you're like, dang. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the ways that we that we now want to approach it to make it more like a, a, a you know a strategy and a set of tactics for how we begin to approach this, um, how do we live into vulnerability? How did Carla from our last episode? How does she begin to really press into this question of healing and regeneration or recommissioning? Begins uh, with a model that I think that we would find in the twelfth chapter of Hebrews, verses one through two, and this is a model that we've then extended and kind of blown up into what what has you know for those of you who've listened to other seasons of our podcast when we talk about confessional communities, the confessional communities are really what grew out of this notion of a healing cloud of witnesses that we're going to talk about, and so we we like to say that if 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 healing from shame and it's recommissioning and our regeneration into uh, new creators, co-creators with Jesus of places of goodness and beauty. We like to begin at the beginning. And we start, just probably, we're just going to name Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off all the sin that so easily entangles us, and then let us walk with perseverance, the race that has been set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher or completer or champion of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. We're just going to walk through that because those words provide a structure, a framework, a model for how we can enter into this process. And this whole notion that, therefore, since we have before such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12 begins where Hebrews 11 left off, which is in which the writer lists an array of people of the faith who have been faithful. Some have been faithful and uh, done so with great glory. Others have been faithful and have paid with it paid for it with their lives. Uh, There's no guarantee that we get out of this world on our terms. But it's these people that the writer's referring to, which, you know, really kind of already is kind of prompting our imagination to recognize that there are other people in the room. And it's an echo of Genesis chapter one, this whole notion of let us make mankind, that it's not just me and a, a singular God. I... The Trinitarian God of the Bible invites us into to a meal where there are people around already. They're like they want us to be there. There's not just one person. Like they have all, they have three people who then they all want us to be there. This notion that my mind needs a community. My mind longs for a community. It's one thing to walk into a space where you know you're at a party and there's one person that you know. And that person sees you when you walk in and they come over and they're really, but imagine if you come to a party and there's like eight or 12 people there and like a half dozen of them or all of them stop what they're doing 
and just welcome you into the room. This is this cloud of witnesses that are seeing us and with us. And this notion that they do so as kind of a recapitulation of this Genesis 2.25, like we invite you into this space to be vulnerable. We invite you into this space to be who you are, to be differentiated, right? Male and female, this, this sense that like I'm going to be with people who are not like me. They're not all carbon copies, which means there will be parts of me that perhaps I don't know if they're going to like them or not like them. There are parts of me that I know that I don't like. Maybe you're not going to like them. Maybe you're not going to want them there. But there is this sense that we're differentiated, that we are naked, that we are vulnerable, and it's a space where shame is not going to have the talking stick. And that's important because... Shame will look for an opportunity to go anywhere it is given room to breathe. And part then of that follows next, since we had this great cloud of witnesses, one of the first things that we ask is, who are the people that are in your life that are your cloud of witnesses? Who are they? Could you name them? And you might say, well, no, Kurt. Uh, or no pepper, I don't, I don't, I don't have them. I like how, how do I find them? As we'll come to later, and as we've talked about in other episodes, like these are things that we have to create sometimes. These are not things that are just going to be out there in the world. We just uh, look it up on on Google. Cloud of witnesses. Where do I find cloud of witnesses near you? <laughs> like five guys, yeah. right? You know, it's like five guys near me. No, no, it's not. It's not how they work. We have to really do the work of being considering that we're going to have to create this community that is joyful in our presence, no matter my condition, but who are also there to help set limits. Because the next thing that we read is, since you've got this great cloud of witnesses, it then says, throw off everything that entangles, throw off every sin that entangles. This isn't a community that welcomes you in and say like, we just, we, we're gonna welcome you in as you are and you can be whoever you want to be regardless, forever. Jesus comes with good news of our being welcomed to the table of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. And that is going to require certain conditions. Not to be loved, not to be invited, but I can't come to that table and be committed to my addictions. I can't come to that table and be committed to my shame. I can't come and be committed to my... Not because they won't let me in, but because that part of me that wants to live that way isn't going to survive that much beauty, isn't going to survive that much love, isn't going to survive that much reality. The parts of me that are ashamed are not going to survive light that is that bright. And so the writer is very clear. This is a group that is also going to welcome and invite me to name my sin. One of the translations reads throw off the sin that so easily distracts us. And one of the things that we talk about is this notion that all sin begins with distraction. Eve was distracted. The serpent was subtle. His power was in his subtlety. He's like a magician. It's a sleight of hand. It's a sleight of word. It's a sleight of emotional state. It's a distraction. And distractions are what lead to wounding. And this is what I must say no to. 
And it's hard to do that. It's hard to say no, but this is why we know that people who are in recovery, in recovery groups for substance abuse, for pornography, for anywhere, these other, they, we, we are able to say no to things that I, actually there's a part of me that really wants to say yes to. Like I really want the heroin. I really, I really want to look at porn. I really want to have that more intimate conversation with that man or that woman who's not my spouse but who's married to somebody else or I'm married. Well, like I, I want to, I, this thing, this hunger, this, I really want to do that's to say no to that is really hard to do. Like I, like if it weren't right, I mean, there wouldn't be like, it's like I was reading this, uh, I was reading this book chapter on temptation and he was citing a Victor Borgia, Borgia what's the, uh, the, Comedian who was the pianist, yeah, Victor Borg, Victor Victor Borg, yeah, Victor Borg, yeah, Victor Borg, and and he's doing this set piece, and he's like, um, he's he's telling about he's talking about Adam and Eve, and this quip on temptation, and Eve, in a fit of like personal insult, says to Adam, "Do you love me?" And Adam turns to her and says, "Who else?" right i mean this i mean it's it's hard it's difficult for us to say no but from the beginning we have been uh the, the creation was arranged in such a way that the option to say yes to sin was available. We're not going to be able to become the people of beauty and goodness, the the people of weighted glory that Paul talks about, unless we have the option to sin, to which we then say no. But the people in the recovery rooms will tell you, people in AA and NA will tell you, like, I'm able to say no primarily because I'm I'm taking somebody else with me. The longing that I have, I'm, I'm going to practice having that be met right here in this room to acknowledge this is the longing that I have and to have them say, yep, we really get it. And, and you, the longing is legit. Yeah, and I'm sure that you don't want to go back in the room and have to say, you know, have to go through the, the act of, you know, I, admitting it. And, right. And if you're, if you're in those rooms and you're building those relationships, you don't want to go back and lie to them. So that's almost right. a, a deterrent to it as well, I would think. Right. Yeah, there is a degree to which shame does become a deterrent. And as, we, as we've said, that's not a bad thing. It, it is an indicator. Um, as we, we've said earlier in, our, in this season, there are acts that we commit for which shame is the proper response. Those kinds of behaviors are, are things for which shame. And I, I want to avoid that. The challenge, of course, is if the only reason that I have for not indulging in my sin is to avoid shame, that becomes problematic. The thing that is going to most sustain me is if my relational connections to other people is moving toward what I do want ultimately, Mm -hmm. rather than simply trying to keep me away from what I don't want. Mm. So we see then how saying no is something that we can do more courageously and more effectively when we're in the middle of community because my brain is not as alone. 
to saying no, I worry that I'm not going to have access to the thing that I long for, the thing that I want, that ultimately leads to shame. And I'm actually searching for it in the first place anyway because of my shame, because I'm not enough. I'm not going to get enough of what I have, so I'm going to go there to get that. But in community, people can validate that my longing, not for the thing I want to misuse, but what's behind it, my longing for to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. And that becomes what I pay attention to that can, en- a- that can enable me to say no to these other things. But it takes a lot of work because that, you know, as friends of mine, like a patient of mine who's been sober for 20 years, and he says, look, the only thing that stands between me and disaster is one drink. Mm. And uh, so he knows that it's not a matter like I haven't, I haven't stopped this thing. And our, and our shame is, you know, it, it's still embedded. We're just having to build new neural networks. That's really what we're doing all the time. And then this moves us to this next line that we're going to, you know, we're going to say no while we walk with perseverance. We're going to practice over and over and over again. It takes perseverance. We walk with perseverance on this journey, on this race that has been laid out for us, noticing that like I'm not ultimately the master of my own destiny. The race has been laid out by somebody else. It's hard for me. But the point is not to say you don't get to choose. The point is to say, I want you to know that you're not by yourself. Somebody else is thinking on your behalf of your race, that when you get to hard places, you need to know God has provided this for you because he loves you and he's inviting you into this hard place because it's going to help you develop, become more capable of holding the weight of glory that is coming for you. And otherwise, I just remain too fragile. So I'm going to persevere. I'm going to practice in this community, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And that means that we watch what he does and we do what he does. Watching him at his baptism, being receptive to God's love. You're my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. In our community, we need to have the experience, the practice of hearing people say, Pepper, man, I'm just so glad to be in the room with you. And to not brush that off, but to allow ourselves to receive it because, and it's hard to receive. It's embarrassing. It's, it's too intimate. It's too present. While at the same time, it is what my soul hungers and thirsts for like nothing. To hear my dad say, man, I'm so pleased with you. It's hard because I know of all the things that I would assume he's not going to be very pleased with. He's like, oh, no, no. I know about those parts. I want you to hear what I'm telling you. I want you to pay attention to me. And in so paying attention to that, I am then able to walk with him into other rooms where I worry that he wouldn't be pleased. Whereas it turns out he's already waiting for me. So I'm going to watch what Jesus does at his baptism. I'm also going to watch what he does in the very following chapter in the Gospels, running from, for instance, Matthew 3 to Mark 3. I mean, Matthew 3 to Matthew 4, Luke 3 to Luke 4, this notion of his temptation. This notion that when evil comes for him, he's able to say, it is written. And for Jesus to say, it is written, it's like him saying, yeah, but my dad says... We all have these experiences of when we were, as kids, perhaps glad in those moments where we could see, my dad says, I'm not just banking on my authority that I know feels flimsy at the moment. I'm actually banking on the authority of someone who's bigger and badder than me. 
There was a time when I was a kid, and I was walking down the street, and I was probably 14, 13, 14, something like that. And a kid from the neighborhood who was 16 was driving his car and screwing around and coming like, like, like at me, right? And so, and I didn't know it. And I turned around and he's right there and I jumped up on the, my instinct was to jump. I jumped up on the hood of his car and my hand went into his windshield and broke his windshield. Wow. So. I'm not messing with you anymore. That's for sure. So later, like that evening, this boy shows up with his dad at my house with a lie saying that I did this to him, to their car on purpose, and I owe them money for their car. Oh, my gosh. To which my dad, who was standing right there, who I had already told the story to of what had happened, was like, "Uh uh-uh. This isn't this isn't happening here, and basically told him to 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 leave, and that was just when you were t- telling that's talking about that you know my dad who was like standing mm. up for me in mm. that moment, mm. you know where where lies were being told about me and they were mm. telling me I owed them money mm. and all this kind of thing, and uh, and just to feel his protection in that moment and was was pretty powerful. I still feel it. I feel it right now as I'm telling the story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I I I know we only have so much time here, but I really want us together, you and me and mm-hmm. our listeners to just sit with this and to sense that this is this is what our God wants us to hear. Like, uh-uh. That's not happening here. When our shame attendant comes to find us, when evil is the wolf at the door, that's just such a beautiful. That's the first I've heard that story. That's that's a beautiful story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, you guys, I want to tell you about an organization that is very dear to us. Hope Heals Camp is a truly unique offering in the world. Just this summer, Kurt had this great opportunity to attend one of the camps. I'd love to hear you tell us about that, Kurt. Thanks, Bep. You're right. I had the chance to attend Hope Heals Camp, as you can see from my T-shirt, an opportunity to spend time with the organization founded by our friends Jay and Catherine Wolf. And the Hope Heals Camp creates an opportunity for adults and children alike, people with disabilities, to come to a space where they can be cared for and be nurtured and nourished. And where I also discovered not only that I had the chance to be healed in certain ways, but that we discover that we all have disabilities. It's just that some of us, uh, it's more visible than for others. And so I was just really excited and humbled by being able to be part of this and really love that we're having the opportunity to support and to promote this camp. There is no other space in existence today like Hope Heals Camp, and we have a great opportunity to support this amazing organization. We can help scholarship families with disabilities to come to camp for free through a tax-deductible donation. Every donation makes a difference, and $1,500 allows a family of four to attend for the entire week. Go to hopeheals.com forward slash donate. That's hopeheals, H-O-P-E-H-E-A-L-S dot com forward slash donate and join us in giving to this great organization.
Well, this is this is what we say that even in our healing cloud of witnesses that we watch what Jesus does, then we do what he does, and by doing what he does, meaning that we are going to become for each other in this community what Jesus and the Father and the Spirit share. We are going to become Jesus' eyes and voice for each other. We are going to hear each other say, gosh, I'm just so glad that you're in the room. I'm going to hear God say, where are you? I'm going to hear you ask me, where are you? I'm going to hear you want me to say, what's the truth about where I am? Even the parts that I don't like, that I'm not enjoying, or that I hate, that I'm afraid, my sin, as it were, in order for me not to be alone with it, in order for me to be transformed and repent and turn and move in a different, move in a direction that I really do long to be moving in. And that requires that we actually practice, what we like to say, these practice, we, we practice acts of imagination. Moving from imagination then to incarnation. We talk, we've talked before in a previous season about confessional communities and about the role that they play. You know, uh, and again, I, I forget if we've said this here before, but we don't have a lot of evidence in the Old Testament. We don't have a, a lot of instances in which we see the writers using the metaphor of the body uh, as being descriptive necessarily of, for instance, the kingdom of Israel or the people of people of God, so for the, the body, his people, it, truly. But, you know, by the time Paul comes along and uses the body of Christ as a metaphor, I mean, we now 2,000, you're like, we, we people of faith, we, we hear that and it's just like, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't really capture our imagination. It doesn't really, it, it's, kind of like watching paint dry. We were just so familiar with it. But we have to remember that when Paul writes this, it would have been completely anathema, completely counter to the culture, where the culture was a place where the culture of the time outside of the Hebrew, like you could do with your body whatever you wanted to. It was a thing that you owned and, and we used your body. I use your, you know, we use other people's bodies. Like the body wasn't something to be honored. The body was something to be used. And if I was a Roman citizen, I could go use somebody else's body, whoever whoever's body that I wanted to, who wasn't a citizen. If they were a slave, I could have sex with them. I could have them do things. For like, oh, I could do whatever I wanted to do because the body was not honored. The body was not honorable. Gnostics would say we're doing everything we can to get away from the body. We just need to like think our way to heaven. We just have these enlightened as if, but Paul grounds us in Genesis 1, 2, that we are created beings. And so he moves us into this notion that in a confessional community, like, I'm going to hear your voice, I'm going to see you seeing me. All this embodiment is the very material world that the Holy Spirit is moving within and through as a way to create goodness and beauty in the world. This notion that we love each other with our minds means I'm going to love each other with my presence, with my physical presence. My witness with you is going to be intentional in its direction. We're going to move toward Jesus. Moving from what I, and, and for instance, we, we talk about this notion that I, I worry that I'm not going to be okay. I worry, I, I long to be okay in the future where in which if I'm in the room with you, I sense my being okay right here and now. And then this collecting 
of my story, collecting these stories of healing, makes it possible for me to take those stories with me. I hear your story, you hear mine, and I begin to take the stories of my cloud of witnesses with me into my day. Not just their stories, but their story of me. It's often very different than the one that I'm telling of me. One of the practical ways that we address this is by we invite people to do this little exercise that <laughs> take inventory. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's just it's it, at first glance it's just not very fun. But this this shame inventory that we we like to say you keep your friends close, you keep your enemies closer, and this is a proactive and a preemptive way of naming our shame to tame it, and it's a way that helps us practice being beyond and before words or cognition, we start to pay attention to what I sense and image and feel this whole sense of like the Carla's story, for instance, as it was before, right? She and her husband moved into this time of regeneration. It it was terrifying for her at first, but they began to do their work together. And he was in a confessional community. She, they were, they started to do this work together but it didn't mean that everything, like, suddenly, they didn't just, oh, here's the, here's the problem, here's the solution, and now we're great. Right. I was going to no, say that if you start taking a shame inventory, chances are you're not going to fill the shelves, right? Because you're not going to even know in the beginning necessarily what, what you're, what's all in the inventory. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I remember when we, when we first, years ago, when we first started to do this, and we'd say, take your three by five card and, you know, just make a mark on it. One, two, three, four, five. And I just want you to just pay attention to when you sense, image, feel, think of, or want to do something with your body in which shame is the provocative element of the moment. And I remember having one guy that came back to me once. He said, like, look, like, I, look, I actually have a job that I have to do. I, I, that I have to earn money. And I don't have time to be doing this. He's like, by 10 o'clock, I filled up both sides of one three by five card. Like, I don't, I don't have, like, what? Like, right. Because the purpose of the inventory is not to figure it all out. The purpose is for you to become increasingly attuned and aware to its ubiquity, to its presence. That it's just everywhere. It's, and all we want to do is stop it, is to pause it. Because to pause it, to pause the process means we begin to practice giving ourselves space to breathe, exhale, and then turn our attention back to our cloud of witnesses, our attention back to Jesus. These are literally interpersonal neurobiological exercises that we are enacting that get us to a point where we are practicing becoming different people. We are renewing the mind and this is what Carla had to do. They would have times, even after they'd started to see progress and movement in their relationship, there would be other times when something would come up, her husband had, you know, Preston had done something or not done something and so forth, and the old stuff started to come up for her, and she would be flooded with memories of her relationship with her boss. And she, you know, it would feel good, and she would just want to sit with that, and it would be maddening for her. And even to this day, like those experiences don't just go away forever. It's not like she never thinks about her boss. But the acuity, the intensity with which that longing is present for her is very, very different than it was when her healing process began. So we we strengthen our capacity, but we to to, to resist that. But we have to remember that the sooner that we 
pay attention to, as as we said, like as 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 time would go on, she would discover that it. She would start to pay attention. Oh, I'm sensing this thing. Instead of just giving into it, she would say, oh, that's my shame attendant talking. And I'm going to pause right now. Instead of waiting for 10, 15, 30 minutes when she's kind of gone down the rabbit hole, that kind of practice enables us to pause and enter into the recreation of the new story that we're trying to create. And in this way, we are essentially doing what we say that Jesus did with the cross, that we're scorning shame for the joy set before us. We're, te- we're, we're identifying shame and saying, like, I don't, thank you, thank you, like, I get it, I don't need you. We're not even trying to be angry. We don't need to be angry with the attendant. We're not trying to get rid of the attendant in that way. We're simply, we want to identify it so that we can ignore it, so we can turn our attention away and turn our attention toward those parts of me. Like, if that shame attendant is coming, it's coming for a reason. Not just to devour me, but it's also letting me see that there is a part of me that longs for something, part of me that hungers and thirsts for something. So it can draw my attention to that instead of to my addiction. And the thing that I long for is this joy. And I have to come back to my community in order for me to find joy in that community, to be reminded of the joy that Jesus has in my presence, the joy that the Trinity has, the joy that Jesus was setting his face toward even on Good Friday. And in this way, we run this race with perseverance. We practice, practice, practice together doing a lot of things. And we see then that we recognize and have to remember that this practice in community is not just something that I'm doing for myself personally, but as a community, we are having to do it. You know, what we really like to say is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a bigger train. The ninth chapter of John's gospel tells the story of a blind man who Jesus and his disciples came upon and their first comment to Jesus is like, who sinned, right? They're just getting the shame dagger out. They're just saying like, what, you know, who's this guy or his parents? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's the wrong question to be asking. It's not who sinned, him or his parents, but this man was born blind such that the glory of God might be revealed. And that story goes on to tell of a man who was then healed. Jesus heals him and then all hell breaks loose because then people are upset about this. The neighbors tell the attorneys and the attorneys drag this guy in and they drag his parents in and then this guy in and then the guy starts to yank his their chain like, oh, you must want to believe in him too. And they put him out of the community. They put him out of the community. And what the story really tells is not about the blindness of a man, but the blindness of a community the shame of a community. And this is what happens, that shame becomes a situation in which the whole is larger than some of its parts. And so we need a community. As we say, if our shame is like a locomotive, I'm not going to stop that locomotive by just pushing against it myself. That's what my shame is like. My shame is like a locomotive. It's not like a little red radio flyer wagon coming at me that I could easily stop. It's it's like a locomotive. It's And it doesn't come at me all that fast, but its mass effect is something I can't stop. And so I need the mass effect of a bigger train of my community that will help me push back against that. Just to be reminded that there are those of us who will hear this and will say like, yeah, I really want to do that. But in my family, my family of origin, we might not even be living in that family of origin again, but how many people still have are impacted by their families of origin, right? I'm 40 years old, but I'm or I'm 60 years old, and I'm still all the, my, my parents, my, si- we have to recognize that when you choose to turn toward the light, when you choose to no longer cooperate with the system, like under the system in John 9, the system will not necessarily be cooperative with you. 
it may want you to maintain the system. And so therein lies the need for Jesus to come and find you, for us to maintain this community of our own in the same way that Jesus came to find the blind guy after his community had put him out for being healed. And so once again, we recognize that, you know, it'd be tempting to think, oh my gosh, here's a great model. Hebrews 12, one through two, we're just going to step into it and apply it and everything will be great. And we have to remember that, again, evil sees this and sees the work that you want to do and uh, understands that this is your declaration of war against it and will come with all that it has. And in fact, the more we grow, the stronger will be those temptations to turn away from our community, away from our healing cloud and toward our own isolated way of trying to handle things like we used to do in those old system. But we are about building a bigger train. We are about going to the very places where shame exists in order for us to turn the stone over, for us to reveal it in order for it to be healed and recommissioned. And toward that, de- toward, toward that end for our application uh, this week, I just want to invite you this week, each day, uh, it doesn't take very long, just to read Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And then, as always, I want you to journal about what reflections come to mind about each of the elements that we've reviewed in the podcast today. What parts encourage or energize you? What parts intimidate or frighten you? Begin to practice keeping a shame inventory, but again, not on your own. You don't want to just do this and then have that sit with you. You want to have someone that you can name these things with. And so notice what happens the more you keep your enemy closer, as we like to say. What what begins to happen to you when you are paying more attention to this? You may find that, my gosh, at first it feels a little overwhelming when I start to see where shame is. And that is the signal that your God is coming to find you and wants to have voices and bodies of people waiting to hear and receive you in the same way that he was receiving his son at his baptism. And then, as we often suggest, consider sharing what you're discovering with someone that you trust as a way to build that community, as a way to realize that uh, you are an outpost of God's beauty and goodness, and he wants you to share that with him and with others around you as we wait for his kingdom to appear in its fullness. Thanks for being on my train, buddy. Oh, dude. Right back at you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a lovely thing to say. It's true. I, I, I am so... I, yeah, right on. It's absolutely true. Right on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for today. This has been great. This has been great. Mm. I love you. I love you too. Hey, stick around uh, on YouTube. Uh, Amy's going to be joining us for a post-show discussion, and that is always lively. See ya. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.